When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Dr. Laurie Santos. In a world that sometimes feels uncertain, there are beacons of hope in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network. We believe that the people living all around you are your best bet at creating meaningful social bonds and preparing you for the next big weather event. Whether it's lending a helping hand to a neighbor in need or standing together in times of natural disaster, Neighbor to Neighbor empowers you to grow your community. Visit caneighbors.com to learn how you can build a more connected community. Neighbor to neighbor. It takes a neighborhood. Hi, this is Dr. Laurie Santos. In a world that sometimes feels uncertain, there are beacons of hope in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network. We believe that the people living all around you are your best bet at creating meaningful social bonds and preparing you for the next big weather event. Whether it's lending a helping hand to a neighbor in need, or standing together in times of natural disaster, Neighbor to Neighbor empowers you to grow your community. Visit caneighbors.com to learn how you can build a more connected community. Neighbor to Neighbor. It takes a neighborhood. Welcome to episode 204 of the Brighton Rock podcast, which is the second part of the conversation that we have with Dick Knight. We celebrated our 200th episode with the first part of that conversation. Now, a couple of weeks on, we're releasing the second part of it. Now, in this episode, Dick is talking about, sorry about the swearing, um, Bill Archer. He's talking about David Davies and the FA, about Martin Perry, prizing control of the club, the Crawley proposal, Fan power, Archer's affiliation being revealed, fans united and Hereford, dreams of a brave new future, an outrageous EFL bond requirement, um, players such as Jeff Minton, Gary Hart and Rod Thomas from the Gilliam days, and indeed manager Brian Horton, and he talks about the general importance of connecting with fans. So, here we go then with this second part, Peter and I in discussion with the legend and club president, Dick Knight. What was the what was the actual trigger point in the end to surprise that control away to get those horrible fingers off our club? Um, those sticky fingers. Those sticky the sticky fingers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, it was really the mediation process, <coughs> which <coughs> the FA Commission in the David Davis, who uh, had been the only one at the FA to tell Graham Kelly, who was the chief executive, who was only interested in posing on the steps of this hotel or that, or Wembley, talking about England. Um, And he said to Graham Kelly, this is a big issue in football because it's going to happen more and more. You know, that we've got to make a stand. We've got to help Brighton because this guy, if we don't act, we've got to get this guy's control of the club away. Dick Knight has got the fans behind him and, you know, we need to have, because Archer was so duplicitous, you know, he, he wouldn't, he'd say he would let us look at the books and then he'd not allow it. You know, it was, it was unbelievable, uh, the, the frustration. Um, and David, because I'd met him early, he came to, uh, Meet, have a, he, he met with the fans at the, um, what's the club on the seafront, you know? Oh, um, uh, the, the, uh, Concord. Is it the Concord? The Concord, yeah. Yeah. He came there and he, you know, he was brave enough to come there because he thought the fans would be against him because he represented the FA. And I said, then they are not, they won't be against you providing you show that you were prepared to try and do something about the situation to help, you know, to unlog the, you know, the log jam. Un- because the log jam yeah. is because of the ineptitude of, of your uh, 
bosses at the FA, or your colleagues at the FA, in particular the chief executive um, and the Football League, they're both sitting on their hands because they're scared, you know, that Archer will do something like um, Alan Sugar did. And um, so David heard all that and he thought that Graham Kelly's response was pathetic. You know, um, Graham Kelly wasn't, I mean, Graham Kelly came to a couple of meetings that they held, the FA held in London, where I sat with Liam Brady, you know, and Bob Pinnock on one. We were sat, it was like a, it was like a uh, court martial. You know, the FA big rooms <laughs> were sitting up the top on this raised pedestal, you know, on the yeah. platform. We were down one side and Archer was down the other side. And, you know, we were up in front of the beak, so to speak, you know. And Archer, and uh, he wouldn't even allow Bellotti to be there. He was so bloody incompetent, Bellotti. It was just Archer and Ray Bloom was there representing the club, right? Because hmm. he was the only director that stayed on when Archer got control of the club. So anyway, the point is hmm. Ray... And Archer were one side and there were the other. Graham Kelly opened the meeting at 10.30 in the morning. After about five minutes, he said, right, I'm going to leave you guys to it. Uh, I'm, I'm very busy. I've got to. And he, he left the whole meeting, which went on until the afternoon. And he came back a few minutes before the end of the meeting and then went and did all the press that David Davis and his colleagues at the FA had actually run the meeting. And, you know, they could see in that meeting just how devious Archer was. You know, they could see that this guy was, you know, he was he was clinging on despite, you know, being not, he was unpopular for all the wrong reasons because he was, you know, not because he was, uh, he was unfairly unpopular. He The things he did were all against the club. It was only in his favour you know, to give him control of the club in the first place. Anyway, David um, said to the FA, we have got to, he talked to me and said, because I'd mentioned arbitration, which I'd been involved in a couple of times in business. Um, and he thought about it. And then he, uh, he, he did some inquiries about mediation himself. And he thought it would be a, a very good way to go. He put this to the FA board um, and that he said we of course have got to pay for it because you know we need to we need to it, this can't remain this it's it's a log jam and it's an issue for it's it's a parable of modern football it's going to happen more and more that business people are coming into football and not interested in the team they're interested in the team's assets and in Brighton's case it's their ground in a very high uh value piece of real estate in Hove, you know, and um, to hell with what happens to the team. And it was, that was what did it, the, the mediation. He, he again started Archer. Each one of us was given a mediator. I had one guy, he had the other guy, two mediators. These two mediators had just come off. Can you believe this? A mediation in uh, Palestine. In the, you know, what's it, the Sinai Valley hmm. in Palestine over a <laughs> land dispute. Yeah, that's they were very highly experienced uh, in the Sinai Peninsula. That's where they've been on this very high profile land dispute. And then they came to do Brighton. <laughs> it was like incredible, really. Nothing that has never happened in football before or since. Um, in terms of that's how we un, un, un freed up the logjam. Uh, they went to 49.5% shares for me, 49.5% for Archer, and 1% for Martin Perry, who ostensibly was neutral because he worked for McAlpine. You know, Archer obviously thought he could get Martin. You know, Archer was eventually prepared to do that. Although he was 
kicking and screaming all the way, you know, to eventually agreeing it. Uh, but he thought he could persuade Martin, you know, to vote with him on any content, any contentious issues. And uh, so he eventually went along with it, you know, 49 and a half, 49 and a half. Uh, But the key thing is that he no longer had control, you know. Yeah. And then Martin Perry, I mean, he's he's described himself as an Albion fan. Was he an Albion fan back then? Because that would have been brilliant if that had gone under the radar. I think he'd, um, well, I know that he had had been at school in Brighton. And he... He got on in my good books for a number of reasons, but one of them was he said, I used to like Mike Tiddy, right? Now, Mike Tiddy was a right winger for the Albion. So Martin was absolutely right. You know, Mike Tiddy, he was a Cornishman and you don't get many Cornishmen playing league football. Um, But he also had this white stripe down the middle of his hair, (laughs) of his hair. It, it, it wasn't. It wasn't a dye. It was natural. You know, he just had this white stripe. His hair was dark, except for this white streak down the middle of his hair. So he was known as, you know, not Flash Gordon because we had a Flash Gordon later after Mike Tiddy, or maybe I think he was before Mike Tiddy, but he played in the same position, right wing. But Mike Tiddy came from the Arsenal which obviously endeared him to a lot of people because he, he played for Arsenal in the first division. And Martin, you know, came up with this name as saying that I used to like Mike Tiddy. So I, you know, accepted that Martin was an Albion fan. And he, so he knew something about it, but he wasn't really. A, he's, he's now, a, you know, he's been an Albion, a, a football fan for since he got together with me, you know, um, it's, Certainly you wouldn't say he wasn't an Albion fan now. But he no, did no. he was at school in Brighton or he lived in Brighton and he uh you know, he 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 knew Mike Tiddy and he knew one or two other but the one that he I I was interested in was he knew this player. So he was a yeah. He 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 had connections with the Albion. Yeah. And then, of course, the rest followed from there. And that's been well documented in other stuff we then won't need to sort of say too much about that because I think uh the rest, um, we, we sort of know, but, um, if you do want to add any, impart any further bits of info in, uh, please do. But I, obviously once you've got control, what, what, just to clarify as well, this date by this point was, this was in 96, wasn't it? I'm trying to remember now. No, it was, it no, was, um, April 97. That was oh, when, yeah. on the yeah. Thursday before the game against Doncaster at home on the Saturday, we made this announcement from this mediation centre in London. Uh, the mediators and David Davis made the announcement that the club, had, you know, we'd come to an agreement, Archer and myself, and that I was chairman in waiting, right? Yeah. Uh, because he was still going to be part of it. He was going to be a director because he, you know, he he wouldn't, let go completely. His pride would not allow him to let go completely. So but the point is, as I said, we, we got him control away from him, and that was the key thing. Um, but what happened is, so there was this game, I mean, it, it was the timing, I was, we were desperate to get some sort of conclusion, you know, before the very end of the season, uh, because who knows if we'd actually gone through to past the end of the season and we'd been relegated you don't know what the outcome of that negotiation might have been he may have dug his heels in even more for all that you know we had to get it done in order to be able to announce it you know by that last game ideally so we could lift the spirits of the fans who'd been through hell you know for two or three years as the team sunk lower and lower, and it was the, you know, the crass mismanagement of the club. Um, so, but what happened? So there was this announcement in London. Uh, Archer was at this press conference, but never said anything. Uh, I was obviously interviewed a lot uh, by various media and so on. And so 
ostensibly, there I was. We came to the Goldstone on the Saturday. Uh, this is gonna, you know, this guy's the new chairman. I'd never been in the West Stand before, except for once, right? When England played a, a I think it was England B team or England under 23s played a, a, a international and Peter Ward scored a hat trick in this game. I think it was against Switzerland and England won 6 0. This is when we were in Division 3, you know, and he, he scored a hat trick. Peter Ward at that time was the best striker in England at any level and he should have walked into the England first team. And he didn't, but he played in that game and he scored a hat trick. Um, and people, you know, they didn't believe he could do it at the top level, but he, he could because he, he scored these three goals. Anyway, I was invited as a guest to that game. Um, and I sat in the West End. That was the only time prior to the Doncaster match that I had actually sat in the West End. Right. Um, and so it was all new to me, except that obviously I, <laughs> I knew where it, what, what it was. I went into this, into this rundown ramshackle, uh, building, you know, which is the West Stand. And I went into this rundown ramshackle boardroom with the paint peeling off the walls. It was truly pathetic. You know, this mm. club, there was no, uh, cabinet. With any trophies in it, there was nothing. There was a faded list of international players that had played for the Albion uh, that had long since been updated. You know, it was it was like looking at a ghost town, the remnants of a ghost club, um, and that's effectively what it was, really, because it had been allowed to run down and run down so much. Everyone, you know, was demoralised because they, the people running it made them feel demoralised. And, uh, you know, I, I realised just what a task I had on my hands. But on the other hand, um, there it was. We won that game. Uh, I said, you know, I'm the only football league chairman ever to have a 100% win record. So I was geeing people up, you know, and make, and we were, go to Herrickburg. And... Um, you know, the importance of that game cannot be underestimated by any fan who goes to the Amex today. Because if we had got relegated, I pledge uh, that I would, I would, you know, become chairman officially hmm. and I would bring the club back to the Football League. But, my God, it would have been difficult, you know, because we would face even more problems uh, if we'd gone down. However... You know, if we had gone down, I know that I would have got the club back to the league. You know, because we, the following of the club has always been there. It's always been a potentially big following. Partly because of our, well, it's mainly to do with our captain area. You know, people are not just Albion fans from Brighton and Hove, are they? They're Albion fans. Well, you guys live in London, but I mean, what I'm saying is, you know, People originate as Albion fans if they live in Haywood Seath, Worthing, Eastbourne, you name it. You know, mm. the only place they don't is probably Chichester, where there's probably more Portsmouth fans in Chichester, um, yeah. or certainly going in that direction, it becomes more Portsmouth territory. And, of course, Crawley is really the South London club's territory, more than the Albion Um because of the, you know, cruelly new town after the Second World War, people came out from South London. So a lot of Crystal Palace, uh, Millwall, you know, West Ham, Charlton fans came down to that area of, of Crawley. Yeah. yeah. So the Albion has never had a big following in Crawley, although I did try and take us to Crawley rather than have to go to Chillingham. But that was another, you know, appalling... Yeah decision by the Football League to stop that. And, and you said Millwall as well, I think, didn't you? Was, yeah. was, was another option. Yeah, well the one that I uh, because the, the obvious for me, the obvious for, for me was Crawley who just got this new stadium uh, you know, which held 4,000 and it was not big enough, but it was it had the potential. 
So we could have built it up to 10,000, which at our cost, you know, so people, Albion fans could just drive 25 miles up the road to Crawley. They would have got a football league standard ground. Um, and it was so much more the best, most obvious thing to do. But unfortunately, politics got in the way because um, Crawley was old labour, very much old labour, run by old labour people. Um, and as far as they were concerned, Brighton was very much new labour. And near the twain should meet. They didn't like the idea of Brighton and Hove Albion coming to their ground, although Brighton and Hove Albion were prepared to basically give them a high-quality ground at no cost to them. And the club itself, the interesting thing is, because Crawley Council, and probably still do, owns the ground. Uh, the Crawley Town, obviously, were delighted with the idea. A, they probably benefit in terms of getting, you know, a few loan players from, from us, but also they'd have a football league quality stadium. And of course, look what they did brilliantly and got themselves into the league. Um, but they still don't have as big a stadium mm-hmm. as they could have done if we'd been allowed to go there in 1997. You know, it'd be I mean, so it's, much better fit, wouldn't it? Yeah, so much yeah. more obvious. A lot of aggravation. We would have been helping a local Sussex team uh, and helping ourselves and helping the fans, helping the economy of Crawley rather than helping the economy of Gillingham, you know. Exactly, yeah. And, I mean, you you talked earlier about um, whether I was around at that time. Actually, I'm sort of, I'm I'm 79 vintage, Peter's uh, 90 vintage iron in terms of yeah. first years of support. But I actually wasn't around much in the 90s. I was um, away with uni. I was working on Saturdays. Even when I wasn't at university, I had jobs involving Saturdays. So I couldn't really get to yeah. games very often. So unfortunately, although I was following things and doing what I could here and there, getting to the occasional game, um, I didn't really get along to much, much. But, um, but what's one of my biggest regrets is not going to the Fans United Day, which of course we're celebrating the 25th anniversary of this very day. Um, I mean, how, the genesis of that and how that came about and, and what a magnificent day that must have been. Um, I can only, I can only gauge it from the pictures really and the, the footage I've seen. Um, quite a phenomenal event really in the history of football in general. Yes. It was unique and it was, it was really showed fans for what they really are. They are the yeah, salt yeah. Of, the, of the game, salt and pepper and earth of the game, the blood, you know, the, the, the bloodstream of the game. Without fans, the game is nothing. And of course that was demonstrated most recently in a dramatic way by the European Super League being yeah. Ultimately, it was the fans that stopped that happening. Uh, and I'm not saying that the reason why, I mean, there, there was a lot of fan, um, you know, activity that was bordering on, you know, sort of uh, violent. But the fact is that the fans, you know, knew that uh, they were being taken you know, for a ride in the sense they were being, they would be asked to fork up even more money for, you know, for probably less games, although, no, they would they would have more games, but you know, the, the whole structure of football would be torn apart and, you know, the fans are so important in every club, you know, it's without the fans, I mean, we're talking about um, top level of football, if the the professional level but look at you know clubs much lower down the pyramid you know you go and watch Burgess Hill or or, you know all the local Sussex teams they've all got fans who support them they you know week in week out and you know it's that those people who become committee members you know club members program sellers whatever they all help the club and that's what they enjoy it it's some, you know, it's a hobby in a way, and it becomes a passion. It may start as a hobby, but it becomes a passion. Yeah. And you know, for me, I think you know why I was able to persuade 
the Albion fans is because I proved very early that I was one of them. I was an Albion fan. I was, I had the uh, wherewithal to do something about it financially because without that, we wouldn't have had a, we wouldn't have a club today. Hmm. Uh, It's just protesting is not enough. You know, you have to have some, be able to wield some real power. And at the end of the day, Archer had to back down because I said to him, you have to match, you know, you're owed a lot of money by this club and you're not taking it out of this club. You're going to invest it in this club. And the amount that the club owes you, I'm going to put that amount in as well. And then I'm going to put more in and you're going to have to match me all the way. Otherwise you're (laughs) out. Right. And that was what did it. He, he paid lip service to the fans in a sense. He would see them and he'd say, yes, I'm, you know, I know what you're feeling. He is a bullshitter. Forgive my language, but you know, he was a, he was a, a bullshitter. And uh, he still is, if he's still alive. I'm, I'm not sure. I think he is still alive. But um, and he, guess what? He's a Manchester United fan. <laughs> or oh, they say he is. But whether he's a real football fan or not, yeah. I don't know. Um, anyway, he always had a, you know, if he had a club at all, it wasn't Brighton. It was Manchester United. Yeah. Um, and he must be, I mean, I must admit, after, here's a lovely story for you, right? Uh, we went to um, one of the first years in the Premiership. You know, <clears throat> we played at, at Old Trafford. And a very good friend um, of – I didn't go in the boardroom because a very good friend of um, my daughter's, uh, she's is a lady who's a judge, and her and her family are genuine United fans through and through, back to the 30s, you know, and this lady was one of the first judges in Manchester, in Lancashire. So she's she's only in her 40s, you know. Anyway, she invited, she has a, a box at Old Trafford, and she invited me and and my, uh, my daughter lives in America, so she wasn't there. But she invited me, my son, and my two grandsons who live here in England, um, to this game. So we, with, we go into the lounge there and have some nice hospitality, but you know, we wanted to get out and sit in the, overlooking the ground. And it was a very top high, uh, tiered, st- uh, position on a corner of one of the corners of the ground and unbelievable view down and immediately, uh, so, and Vicky, Victoria, the woman who's the judge, was sitting there. And I'm sitting, and there's this guy sitting here. So he, he introduced himself to me. And, and I, and, and, and Vicky said, he's actually the president of Brighton, you know. So he said, this guy said, Oh, he said, do you know my, one of my friends, one of my best friends, Bill Archer? <laughs> So at this point, Vicky, who went, oh, she knew the story, you know, and I, I turned to him and I said, yes, how is Bill these days? <laughs> and I said, and I said uh, he may be your friend, but he will never, ever be my friend. And because he said he's got, a, he's got a box here just there, but he doesn't seem to be here today. And of course, it was because they were playing Brighton. That's why he wasn't yeah. there. Yeah, if any, any Brighton fan saw him walking up or something. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, yeah. The, the fact that I was sitting right by the box he has was a complete fluke, obviously. But this guy, you must know my, do you know my, one of my best friends, Bill Archer? <laughs> yeah. That's beautiful. It's you said, you said your regards, Dick. Could you go like, send him my regards? Yeah. <laughs> Well, um, Vic, 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 Vicky, you know, Victoria, this judge lady said, she said to him afterwards, you know, I don't know how Dick contained himself because he was very polite to you. Uh, but he had so many wrangles with that guy 
you know, and, uh, you know, he doesn't like him at all because he nearly destroyed this team that's playing there. You know, there we were at Old Trafford playing in a league match. And if it was for Ar- because if Archer had stayed there, we would never would have been doing that, would we? No. Well, we wouldn't have had a club at all because he would have just run it down. Yeah, you know. exactly. Exactly. But you, no, I mean, sorry, go on, Peter. Yeah. I was going to say was that, yeah, I mean, we were saying about the fans united and that sort of thing. And so I think it, it, considering what, you know, football fans were talked about in the 80s and early 90s, the idea that fans from so many different clubs, and I was there that day, and it was, it was just incredible that, you know, fans coming from Germany, from across Europe, from clubs all over the country, most pretty much every club, I think, were probably represented by some fan somewhere. And it was, you know, the idea that all these people who, you know, over the last decade, a lot of people have been fighting for different clubs, but they would come together, you know, West Ham and Millwall, you yeah. know, Manu, Man- Liverpool, you know, that sort of thing, would all come together like that. It was was incredible. One of the things I remember, I don't know if you remember this picture, guys, but I remember this picture of these three fans walking along Old Road to go by the North Stand. Yeah. And they all had their arms around each other, and they all had big scarves, and shirts. There was a Newcastle fan, a Sunderland fan, and a Middlesbrough fan. Brilliant. And they were all together and they were all arm in arm and that says it all about fans, yeah. doesn't it? You know, brilliant. Absolutely yeah. brilliant. I never really does that picture. And of course Albion fans have, have got involved in other Fans United days and I remember there's one at Wrexham, there's AFC Wimbledon, Cambridge all over the place has been yeah, lots the of Doncaster days. one that, that Donc- Gillingham the first year was made one for Doncaster because they were going through some tough yeah. times. Our home game against them was, was made into a... Yeah, I think that game... It quite matched that, has it, since that first one's never quite matched the, the number of different fans and the number of different people there. No, it was it was a, a relatively uh, pale, um, you know, sort of uh, version of that original one. But I think partly that was because... It's not the attendance, which was pretty good, but it wasn't as much as that first one. But also, if I remember rightly, that was about the worst football match I've ever watched. It was <laughs> nil-nil, and both teams were lucky to get nil. I mean, it was just abysmally bad. And it, I it's the sort of game you'd expect from two teams who've got 30, 30, what, 34 and 20 points in a season. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it was just awful. <laughs> oh, the joys! I remember thinking, "Thank God that's over." You know, it was. It can't get any worse than this. Yeah, and then obviously, funny. again, I missed the Hereford game as well. But uh, obviously, that that day in particular was something momentous. And we've got a friend of the show, Nick Nick Ansley, who lives actually funny enough. You mentioned Manchester. He lives up in the Greater Manchester area, and he's um, asked to ask you a question, which is to say, how did he feel on the morning of the Hereford game, having just secured control of the Albion? Out of the frying pan, into the fire? Question mark. <laughs> um, no, because I fully expected, you know, we'd already come through one big hurdle over one big hurdle, which is winning the game the previous Saturday against Doncaster, which is, of course, in a sense, more crucial. Because if we had only drawn that game, or worse, still lost it, Her- the, the game at Hereford would have been meaningless. You know, unless we actually won at Hereford. And we didn't, you know, what was key that we, is we only needed to draw that game um, at Hereford rather than win it. Um, but, I mean, yeah, there was incredible trepidation on my part because I thought, you know, running a football club can't be as tense as this all the time. But I'm used to tension. You know, I'm, I've worked in the business, which is a pretty high-octane business at the top level. Um, and I'm used to, I can take pressure and tension, but it was going into uncharted territory in terms of, you know, why am I doing this? I'm doing this because I love that club, you know, this club. But the club, as personified by the team that's out there, is just not very good. You know, I can understand me wanting to do this for Mark Lawrenson and Peter Ward and no, or Johnny McNichol, all those stars of my youth and younger days. Um, but I knew I've just got to get this team back to being somewhere near a great team. You know, it's not just surviving. 
we have to grow this club and go. We have to get to the Premier League, and that's why even then I knew that's what we had to do. What I had to do, I had to get the club in a position to challenge, and part of that was getting a stadium. You know, I was started work on getting the stadium before I took over the club. This is why I had Martin Perry in there because I wanted Martin, you know, to tell me what was possible and what wasn't possible in terms of the stadium. But it was no that know-how of of that, you know, of knowing. And he just had that experience of being involved in building the Huddersfield Stadium, um, and so he he and I were a perfect fit, you know. To you know, it was my vision and my drive about what I wanted and how I thought the club, I knew the club had the potential to easily, you know, fill a 30,000 plus stadium, you know, and indeed a 40,000 stadium. What I knew was that we would never get planning permission for a 40,000 stadium because the council would say, why on earth do you need a 40,000 stadium? You only play in front of 4,000 people, 5,000 people. So the plan was, you know, the pl- even planning for the first, you know, the planning application went in for 23,000. And even then the council officers, the planning officers were saying, well, why do you need a stadium that big? And I produced all this evidence that, you know, going back because I was able to put my hands on it very easily all the crowds, you know, that I've been in, 30,000 crowds, uh, the biggest ever crowd, which is still going to be the biggest ever crowd in Brighton, which was at the Goldstone Ground against Fulham, Boxing Day 1956, in, in what is now the championship. You know, we mm. were in the, we were in the, uh, not 56, yeah. Uh, some, it, it, it would have been, was it was Boxing Day sixty sixty maybe nineteen sixty oh, okay. um, thirty six thousand were in the Goldstone Ground. We played Fulham. That was we played Fulham the day before. In those days, you used to play reverse fixtures, Christmas Day and Boxing Day. You know, so the teams used to travel. Oh, blimey! <laughs> yeah. So hmm. we had Man, lost, we had lost at Fulham, um, I think, you know, quite easily. And then we beat Fulham 3-0. And they had the England captain playing for them, Johnny Haynes, who was a wonderful player. But, you know, that day, the Brighton crowd, you know, basically won the game for the Albion. It was, I mean, it was a terrific game, but there was 36,000. And I'd been in crowds, you know, of 31,000, 32,000, uh, when we're in, in League Four. Incredible. That's crowd. amazing to me because when I started watching, the, the capacity had dropped so much. So, yeah. and a lot of the, a lot of the time I was watching from, say, the last like eight, no, seven, seven years of the Goldstone, we had like half the East Stand was shut for most of it. And I, yeah. think, I think one game in the cup against Crawley, we got 18,000 in my time. And that was by far the highest crowd. Even, even, uh, yeah, obviously in the last year at the Goldstone, we got some 10,000, but nothing close to 36. I think, I think, no, obviously not anywhere near 36, but I think, um, the, uh, that game against, you know, the Fans United game, that was 11,000, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, and then we, we picked our so home form really picked up and we had something to get behind something. I think the crowds up quite a bit that second half of the season, didn't they? And they got to once. The fans realised the club was going out of the league and what that might mean for this club. They began to rally around the club. And I think that's what, you know, what was interesting about that was we started winning our home matches, but we still weren't getting any points away from home. You know, we got one win all season, didn't we? I think it was, wasn't it? We we kept losing away matches, which is why the way game at Hereford you know, was such a nail-biter because, because there was no track record of us, you know, picking up points on our travels. I mean, we were dreadful in the first half. I mean, I, I was lucky enough to be there. And, that yeah, the first half, I thought we were pretty awful. And then second half, we played pretty well, got level. And that last half hour, I can honestly say it's the longest half hour of my life. It was just 
never seemed to end. goal made a wonder save down near the at the foot of the post. He got his hand on a shot that was going in, and he saved it. And that was as valuable as Robbie Reinelt scoring. Yeah, but I know when the guy went through late on the last minute and and tried to chip it over Ormrod as well, and he, he just he just held it in his hands. And, yeah, yeah. In an alternate universe, he chipped it a little higher, and that goes in, and all complete. Right. You know, look, look where Hereford are now, and look where we are now. Well, Hereford, um, they have they did come back to the football yeah. league, didn't they? But only after about eight years. Yeah, because we played them in League One, I think, at fifteen, didn't we? At one point. Yeah. They, they did come they back. back down a lot again since then. Back. But then they, I think they're back down in non-league again. Yeah, conference or National League North, back. I think, yeah. Yeah, we would have come back because I would have made sure we came back. But it would have been, I mean, I can't, you know, all I'm saying is I made a pledge that I would stay. I was not going to fight Archer all that time, you know, two years and then walk away from the club just because it got relegated, when it was odds-on to be relegated anyway. Hmm. Um, all that time when I was fighting Archer, you know, we were bottom of the league. So we 12 it, points adrift at one point, something like that? Yeah, um, 12, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it is hmm. yeah, genuinely incredible recovery, really, from where we were. Yeah. And, of course, the other side of that coin was Hereford, at Christmas, were fourth in the league. They were fourth in the league. They, the only time they ever finished bottom, well, they were bottom going into the last game because they were level on points with us and they had a worse goal difference. Um, but that, the only time they were ever bottom was on the 45th game of the season. Whereas we'd been bottom. Isn't that why we had a lot of tickets for that last game? Because they, they were, even then they were mid table when tickets went on sale. So they gave us like, Two and a half, three thousand tickets out of the like the nine thousands. Oh, more. We we oh. had three. I think we had over yeah. three and a half thousand. I think. But they didn't think that would be a, a big game for them. They just thought it would be a. Yeah, big, that's big that's game. exactly right, Peter. Mm. I think they. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, they then tried to, um, you know, get to the league, and uh, you know, appeal to the league that Brighton should have been deducted points for their crowd behaviour. And all that. And I suppose the only thing I can say about the league helping us was that they didn't impose. I mean, if they're going to impose points, but by that time they realized that the Brighton fan, Brighton fans, uh, behavior was being driven by this complete, uh, inability to see anything being done to help their club being saved. You know, the, the football authorities were just clueless. Um, but I think they realised that, you know, if we if we hit them with, you know, eight-point penalty or whatever, that's just going to drive, you know, the final nail in the coffin. Um, when the media, we, we got the media on our side, you know, once I got involved and we started putting the case of why we're, the club is in this position, and a lot of it I was doing because I was trying to teach the football league what they should have been doing. There was a guy, a club, the football secretary, the football league secretary at that time, um, did not do us any favours. He was the guy who was kind of in charge of the league. You know, he didn't do us any favours. He was an old, old-fashioned, authoritarian sort of guy, Um you know, like a local magistrate who he played it by the book to the point where the book was, you know, it was dust covered, but it was still the book. And there was no, no, uh, you know, humanity, no understanding applied to it. It was, that's the rule. That's it. You know, um, and that was, he was the one who imposed this performance bond. He, they called it a performance bond. What was it really was a relocation bond. You don't come back to Brighton. <laughs> Say goodbye to your half a million plus. And when we got that money, by the way, um, when we got that money back, originally they only paid back the half a million. 
And I, I, I said, you know, to our finance, Bob Pinnock, who was the financial director at that time, um, did we, you know, we've got the interest. No, they didn't pay it. We had to chase them for the interest, you know, because they just thought they could probably get away with keeping the interest. Anyway, we, they didn't, I can assure you. That bought us, that probably bought us, um, you know, uh, a good player. I can't remember we had very many good players at that time. <laughs> Jeff Minton was a very good player, you know, when I yeah. took over. He was a yeah. good player. Yeah, he was good. Um, and then we started, I think the second season that we started getting a few of the one or two players come in, like Gary Hart came in that second season at Gillingham, didn't he? And he obviously did pretty well for us over the years. Well, that was, you know, that was when I got Brian Horton into the club. And... Uh, you know, motivated by Brian, who was a hit club hero, as you know, um, that was a great help in, in getting players, you know. But hmm. the story of Gary Hart signing was lovely because you remember a guy called Jeff Wood? Yeah. yeah. He was, he was uh, for a while when, uh, you know, when I had to sack Steve Grid, uh, Jeff stood in as a caretaker manager. And he did all right for a while. Not that I was going to make him the manager of all time. Uh, I was after Horton because I wanted a figure. I wanted someone that meant something to the, you know, to the fans of the Albion. And anyway, I, I persuaded Brian to join us. And he, um, <clears throat> uh, Jeff Wood was his assistant, became his assistant. So one day I get this letter from this guy in Essex saying there's a young lad playing in the Essex Sunday League, you know, for Stansted Airport um, called Gary Hart. And, you know, I've I've written to a couple of, you know, Lake Colchester, I think, and Lake Norrient, but they don't seem to be interested. Um, I, my family or my mum came from Brighton, so I'm writing to you, Mr. Knight, right? You should go and watch this boy. Have this boy looked, you know, this, he's playing centre forward for Stansted Airport. You know, um, so I gave this letter to, uh, to, uh, Brian and I said, Brian, get, because Jeff lives in Essex and I think he actually played in this league, this Sunday league. He was a goalkeeper, Jeff, for Charlton. And, and he still played, you know, at that level. I said, get Jeff to look at this guy, you know, this, this Gary Hart. And, um, so, okay, Mr. Chairman, I'll do that. So a month went by, not that it was the only thing I was thinking. All of a sudden it came to my mind when I was having a meeting with Brian. Whatever happened to that, you know, that boy, did, did Jeff ever go to see, did he go and see him? He said, well, no, oh, oh, he said, no, he's been doing decorating at his house, but he hasn't been playing. <laughs> I said, well, tell Jeff to get his arse down to Stansted or wherever they're playing to have a look at, because this, this guy had written to me, you know, saying, I've not heard a reply from you. So, you know, I was, I was so embarrassed. So, so anyway, so <laughs> Jeff goes to see him. Monday morning, Brian rings me up. He said, that lad at Stansted, he said, I've invited him into the club for a trial. Jeff reckons him. And he said, we're playing Arsenal reserves on Wednesday. I'm going to put him in. If he, if he comes through a practice match tomorrow, Tuesday, you know, five aside, he said, I'm putting him in as centre forward against Arsenal. Chance would have it. Steve Bold, Bold, you know, who was the Arsenal centre half, was coming back from injury. He played in that game against Gary Hart, who scored two goals, right, in the game. We drew 2-2. Gary scored both of the goals. But Brian rings me up. I, I couldn't get to see this game. Brian rings me up. He said, we, we've got a sign-in, Mr Chairman. I said, you bloody well have. If he scored two goals against Bald, he's not going to come up against quality defenders like that every game. <laughs> um, so in the end, we signed him for a set of, for, 
And the sell-on of, you know, like 10% if we ever sold him for anything. We never paid anything for Gary. But because he was, you know, and he came in and he never wanted to play centre forward at all. You know, um, but he, you know, he, he was a wonderful guy for giving it, giving it everything he could. You know, that's why the fans liked him, wasn't it? You know, he it, was, It's amazing to think that he ended up playing quite a lot in the championship for us. You know, yeah. from that beginnings. What a story. Well, he, he always gave his, of his best and, Fans like that. They like a player who tries his hardest. And he had, Peter, you're right, he had a season quite near the end of his career when we were in the championship. I mean, we were in the championship a few seasons when I was chairman. and We played, We were, you know, punching way above our weight yeah. in that because we had a budget, playing budget, that was so much smaller than every other club in that league. But Gary had a wonderful season playing, because Mickey never wanted to play him as a centre forward. He knew he was could be a wide right, you know, sort of Jimmy Case sort of player, up and down the right side, working hard, getting crosses in, defending. He was excellent, Gary, at doing that. And, you know, but I still, I'm proud to say I still had him on a goal bonus. And every now and then he scored and he got paid a goal bonus. Even once he scored at Bristol Rovers when he was playing at right back. And he scored, you know, he got down the wing, crossed it, and somehow or other it went in the net. You know, it came over and it sailed in the net. And he was like, <laughs> you know, so he, I never took this gold bonus away from him. Although, you know, though he had it when he first came because he was supposed to be a centre forward. Um, but, you know, it was lovely. He gave great service to the Albion, Gary. Yeah, it was a huge part of that, that first team that the Withdean team that was built by Mickey, the first two seasons at Withdean when we kind of, it took us from what League Two and then to the championship effectively, you know, kind of, yeah. with like the like, Philip and Watson and then obviously Bobby joining the second season. I mean, that was a, that was having never had any success watching Albion ever, that was, but he, he was sort of like the watermark. Obviously, surviving Hereford in one sense was a, was the key kind of mm. split between the past and the modern era. But in, in a footballing sense, sort of Gary Hart pretty much was synonymous with and kind of inhabited that whole essence of returning on the pitch. I think he was one of those players, those intermediary era players who started to make us look upward finally yeah. at, at last. Because, yeah. Because he tried so hard. Yeah. He, yeah. You know, people loved that. They, they saw, he gave everything in every game, Gary. And in that first season, in a very poor team, he scored 12 goals, which takes a bit of doing. Um, you know, and, but he, he never really wanted to play centre forward. He was a you know, he wanted to play wide and Mickey wanted to do that. And of course, you know, the story of signing Zamora is, you know, I'm sure people have heard it all before, so I won't, won't go into it, but it was basically, you know, Gary personified a change in attitude on the field, you know, in terms of, and which Brian Horton instilled into the club. He, he got the team playing in a certain way. Uh, he lifted the spirits of the players. He made, you know, we brought in players, you know, like the left winger who the fans called, um, oh, what was his name? Little black guy. Very fast. Oh. Rod Thomas. Um, yeah, Thomas. Thomas. Rod Thomas. Yeah. Yeah. Rod Thomas, who I, I was really pleased that we signed him from Shrewsbury, I think it was. And he had a couple of good seasons for us. So Brian brought a, the best out of the player, you know, because he was experienced. He knew the game. He wasn't just a good player. He had been a high-level manager. Um, and he brought the best out of people like this. Uh, you know, Minton started playing much better than he had. And then he left at the end of that first season under, under Horton. But, you know, the team, I mean, I remember we, we, we won five away games on the trot last season. 
you know, which is amazing. I did a video called Horton's Heroes, you know, and it was it was about these five away games. We won five games away games on the spin. And so me ever looking, you know, me looking for an opportunity to raise some money, issued this video called Horton's Heroes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was all about those five away games. And Rod, you know, luckily by that time, I'd made sure we filmed every game, you know, uh, because even when I took over, it wasn't mandatory, you know, for all the, especially when you're in League Two. Uh, but I wanted to have a record of it, you know, apart from anything else for the, uh, for the managers to analyze. Um, but it was, it was a, a turning point for the club. And then coming back from Gillingham to Whitney, you know, of course was a huge step in the right direction. I mean, it was a, it was kind of almost obvious that it would, boost the club's morale because there we've been playing in this, you know, place that dare not speak its name in the, in Kent. That's what, that's what John Bain called it. You know, <laughs> he was right. Um, and, you know, we were, we'd, we'd all, we'd got publicity because of how we'd saved ourselves. You know, and because I came in and I was an Albion fan. And, you know, that was unusual in a way because I made it quite clear that I'd stood on the terraces. I wasn't, I wasn't some, you know, sort of highfalutin guy who was going to, uh, institute this special, you know, club for high quality diners. We'll get to that. We'll get to that when we get to the, you know, upper echelons of the game. Right now we're going to have all the fans working together. We're going to have Hospitality where all the fans mixed together. David Dean, you know, who ran Arsenal at that time, you know, came to look at what we did at Whitney and it affected how they did the lounges in the, in the Emirates Stadium. Because, wow. yeah, because we, I, I got to know David very well. And we, because we had to have it open plan because it, you know, there wasn't enough room. And he liked the way our fans, because he came to a few games, uh, and, and we had one or two players from Arsenal alone, if you remember. Um, and so he saw the way this worked. And, you know, they originally, their architects were going to have a whole s- series of small, you know, uh, isolated, you know, boxes. Dining box, you know, hospitality boxes. Yeah. But he made, they made large areas at that level at the Emirates open plan, you know, because of what we, believe it or not, what we were doing at Whitney. <laughs> it was lovely, believe it. Uh, you know, turning everything on its head sort of thing. Um, yeah. Well, God, uh, it's, is it half past nine? Yes, I, I'm just saying as we're talking, we've, um, time's ticked on. So we, we should probably wrap up this, this episode here, Dick, because I think there's plenty more to talk about, but, um, really it's the, the bulk of the Widdin years, the fight for the Amex, and obviously what you think of the modern incarnation of the, uh, of the team as well. Um, plenty of stuff to talk about there. So I think that's really for another episode, which we could do another time if, you, if you've got to go. Um, I'm, yeah, but taking... I'm, I'm sorry that, I'm sorry, I mm. couldn't believe when I just looked at my, <laughs> It's 9.28. No, Time flies and you haven't so good. It's been, Someone it's been has been rabbiting on. Someone has been rabbiting on. You, you need <laughs> to edit that down, obviously. You know, <laughs> you're going to have a ma- massive editing job. Well, I don't know about editing out, but definitely maybe segmenting. We might have to segment it, but uh, <laughs> it's been absolutely brilliant yeah, chatting, been actually. It's been yeah, really, really so good. Much. So much, so much interesting information. Um, certain bits and pieces people might know before, but it's nice to hear again. And there's lots of other stuff that, um, that people wouldn't have known, and particularly about your sort of supporting background. I don't think so many people know about that, but um, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting. What, my um, supporting with- background? Your supporting background. I don't like your sporting background. Is that yeah. a thing as well, maybe? Yeah, no, well. Um, <laughs> That's a whole other story. <laughs> I was the Trevor Brooking of my time. Um, no, not Trevor Brooking, because I was a bit before Trevor Brooking. I was the Wilf Mannion of my time. <laughs> Have you ever heard of a player called Wilf Mannion? 
I've heard the heard the name. Yeah, yeah. Rings yeah. A bell, yeah. I'm trying yeah. to place where he played for England and Middlesbrough. Um, but you know, he was. Uh, I was a number ten. Uh, you know, and uh, but never played at professional level. But I used to enjoy. You know, opening defenses up with cross field splitting passes. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant, lovely. Well, you should be demonstrating this at the Amex one day, I think, on the pitch. Half-time, Dick, I think. Definitely. <laughs> They'll have to wheel me on. They'll have to wheel me on, and then I'll wheel me off, I would imagine, after that. <laughs> yeah, you might have to score with your head, then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, but brilliant. It's big so, enough. <laughs> Russell, my head is big enough, so... Well, you, I'm used to that. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not agreeing with that one. I'm not getting into trouble. <laughs> but no, I mean, Dick, it's been absolutely brilliant. It's fascinating to chat to you. And we'd love to get you back on for another episode, I think, which we could do sooner or later, whatever you like. Well, we'll, we'll, you we'll know, talk through you, those other. You, yeah, you tell me when you want to do it and I'll, I'll make sure I'm around. Sure. Okay. On. You know, right. I'm, um, I'm always available to do things like this because I think it's important that the, the history of the club is properly recorded. And, Absolutely, uh, yeah. In the inside. Oh, he's frozen now. <laughs> frozen. Sorry, he's frozen for a minute. Frozen there. Like, there. again. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Well, it didn't. Yeah. It didn't. Did it? Have you? No, have we frozen? No, we're okay now. Yeah, we're all right now. Yeah, but when I was talking, it wasn't going down then, was it? Just at the last bit, you, you said, um, what was it at the end there, Peter? Just the, I can't remember which bit it cut off on now, but, uh, yeah, but anyway, it's, um, I mean, it is important to catalogue the history of the club. And my, the essence of this podcast, is, amongst other things, is to get as many different voices on the air, including loads of extraordinary Albion fans, so to speak. Um, and to, to have their stories, but obviously your story amongst the helping fans, given your prowess and your position within the club is of huge importance. And I think it's really important for as many stories to get out there, really. And yeah. for, for especially the, as the years go, as you get further away from these days as well, as we move further away from the, yeah, and from Gillingham and you get more and more new fans coming in who maybe don't know the history that it's, it gets more and more important, I think, to kind of hear all this stuff, to talk about all this stuff again and remind ourselves where we've come from as a club. Absolutely. Yeah, and it, yeah. it's so, Peter, you're absolutely right, because it is so quick that it's happened, really. You know, when you think it was 20 years from bottom of the league to the Premiership, well, it was less than 20 years. But to get, you know, this year is really, we've really started kind of more than putting our, you know, clinging on in the Premiership. We're getting a toehold in the Premiership now. And we should mm. really, you know, we should become an Everton uh, in terms of being in the Premier League for the next 20, 30 years. Hopefully not an Everton tonight, though, because they're 3-1 down at Newcastle. <laughs> Are they? Right. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, there you go. They, um, I think yeah, I, I get your point. We've got to make ourselves a, a long-term Premier League club. But, yeah, it's e- and it is easy. I think a lot of people do forget, you know, where we've come from and what's happened. So we need to, you know, remind it. What is lovely, what is lovely from my point of view is so many people like come up to me in the street with, um, with a kid, you know, a small kid. And the guy who's your sort of age, you, you guys age will say, you know, to the kid, this is the man, you know, they're telling their kids that, that I'm the one who saved the club, you know, or this is the man. We wouldn't be able to go to the Amex if it wasn't for him. And these kids are learning it, you know, and in, they're interesting. They're being taught it by their dads, which is interesting. When it comes down to it in football, at that level, money comes into it, you know. Yeah. And what was yeah. good from my point of view, what was, <laughs> you know, fortunate was that I was able to connect with the fans in a way that maybe very few chairmen have done before, you know, and so we were all working together. You know, there wasn't them and us. It was, you know, it was, we were working together. We were all on exactly the same side. They could see that the leader of the club was thinking the way they did about it. 
you know, I think that has been an invaluable um, lesson for people who live through that because they can see, you know, where clubs are going wrong. You know, some clubs are so badly run. Our club is very well run. Our club now, it's a bit, it's a bit corporate for me. It's a bit too corporate, but it is well run. And the reason it's well run is because I put it on the right track in terms of building. I mean, I built a very big business. You know, I knew how to build a business and I brought a lot of my business acumen to the Albion, but the heart was there first. You know, my heart was there. And that was why it was such a passionate mm. thing for me, you know, uh, because I, I, it was, it was my life, you know, it was, it was fundamental to my life. So yeah. you're fortunate if you're in that situation. Anyway, I'm going to mm. love you and leave you guys. Yes. Yeah. Well, well I, thanks so much again, Debbie. You've been brilliant. It's been so good having you on. Thank you, Peter. Yeah. Um, we'll do it again soon to pick up the second yeah. half of this story. Uh, in chronological terms and um, maybe some more anecdotes besides um, and we'll, we'll catch up with you again soon so thank you very much for joining us and we'll wrap up in the usual way Peter by saying stand or fall up the Albion oh hang on no hang on you want me to do it now sorry yeah go on <laughs> Peter you say it what you say do it all first. again alright so stand or fall up the Albion see goals Sports Social Podcast Network. Hi, this is Will Friedle. In a world that sometimes feels uncertain, where communities can be disconnected, there are beacons of hope in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network. They believe that the people living all around you are your best bet at creating meaningful social bonds and preparing you for the next big weather event. Whether it's lending a helping hand to a neighbor in need or standing together in times of natural disaster, Neighbor to Neighbor empowers you to grow your community. Visit caneighbors.com to learn how you can help build a more connected community. Neighbor to neighbor, it takes a neighborhood.